I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. You know, tensions are already high in this country over abortion rights, otherwise known in some parts as women's rights, with the Supreme Court's looming decision on the fate of Roe v. Wade. But even as Roe still stands, there is a state that's on the cusp of enacting the most restrictive abortion ban in the entire nation. Oklahoma's legislature passed House Bill 4327 today, which would ban most abortions from fertilization. Fertilization, not from 15 weeks like the Mississippi case that's actually before the Supreme Court and we're waiting to hear the final decision. Not from six weeks like Texas that passed that case or um, like Oklahoma itself enacted two weeks ago. No, this new law awaiting Republican Governor Kevin Stitt's signature would outlaw abortions from fertilization, meaning when the sperm combines with the egg. Now, there are exceptions, however, for certain medical emergencies or if the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. But even then, there are tons of questions as to how those exceptions would work in practice. For example, would you just have to report a sexual assault to law enforcement? Or would there actually and eventually have to be an actual prosecution of an assault to terminate that pregnancy? And not only would this Oklahoma law ban abortions from fertilization, it would also allow private citizens to sue abortion providers or anyone who aids and abets an abortion. It's really modeled on the Texas law, is it not? Now, Governor Stitt has previously pledged to sign every single piece of legislation that limits abortion that might reach his desk. So that means this law could go into effect in days, hours, or minutes immediately after he signs. Reaction now from someone on the front lines of the fight for women's rights, Dr. Yashika Robinson, an OBGYN and medical director of the Alabama Women's Center. You may have heard her speaking at the House hearing on Capitol Hill just yesterday, where there were very heated exchanges with lawmakers in general. Dr. Robinson, welcome to CNN tonight. I'm glad you're here. Hello. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm glad to be here. Now, doctor, when you hear about this and what's happening in Oklahoma, really the combination of some of the more restrictive notions. Remember, the Supreme Court's looking at Mississippi, about a 16-week or so ban. This would say fertilization. You're an OBGYN. The prospects of people either, A, knowing that they were pregnant or being able to have this limitation at fertilization, what would this encompass and how difficult would this be for the average person, average woman to be able to exercise the rights that she once had? Well, um, with the Oklahoma ban, that is very unfortunate. I mean, a person cannot know they're pregnant or be pregnant until there's action, until fertilization takes place. So that means that essentially there will be no abortion um, for the citizens of Oklahoma, period. And part of the concern, if you look at sort of the geography of the U.S., as you well know, there were people in Texas who were going to other states across the country that may have bordered Texas or were even beyond it, trying to make sure they could, while Roe v. Wade is still the law of the land, which it presently is. But now this takes away that avenue as well for people to be able to travel outside of Texas or other places to do so. What impact is this having on women in this country right now, particularly in those areas? Well, that's going to create an even uh, bigger disparity for people in Oklahoma and in the surrounding states, um, like here in Alabama and many other places. As continuous restrictions are passed down, more and more clinics close. And with that being said, 
people who need access to abortion care are having to travel further and further. So people who have traveled to Oklahoma and use that as a resource in order to access needed health care, um, that will no longer be um, the next stop for them. Those people will be forced to travel to further states. Um, we also have to look at the impact of the states that will be receiving these uh, patients because they're not only going to be taking care of their own um, clients, but also clients that are now influxing from other areas. Um, obviously, despite our desire to take care of every person who comes in and needs care, um, there's a certain capacity that clinics have. So that means it's going to create longer waiting lists. That means that patients will have to wait longer and longer for care. And unfortunately, that means that many people may never get care at all. You were on the Hill yesterday trying to explain this to lawmakers, in fact, and it must be pointed out, you were a target of an incredible amount of disrespect and rudeness and trying to advocate as your medical profession would, would require you to do on behalf of patients and just explain what the actual impact would be. I want to play for the audience here what that experience was. They can hear in what you actually went through. Do you support the right of a woman who is just seconds away from birthing a healthy child to have an abortion? I think that the question that you're asking, asking does not realistically reflect abortion care. In that in scenario, would you su- how about if a child is halfway out of the birth canal? Is an abortion permissible then? Can you repeat your question? If a child is halfway delivered out of the birth canal, is it permissible to have an abortion? Would you support the right for an abortion then? I can't even fathom that ever. And I'm not asking you if you can fathom it. If it occurred, would you support that abortion or not? That's unrestricted I can't abortion, right? That's a question that I can't imagine. I, just like you probably can't imagine what you would do if your daughter was raped. Mm. Dr. Robinson, I mean, just the sort of the absurdity in part of the question of the idea, I think, is really part of why people have these conversations in ways that create additional political wedge issues. What was your reaction to that notion of being asked that now that you've had time to reflect? What do you think was behind that question? (laughs) In listening to that conversation, I think it just highlights the fact uh, it highlights two things. One that they clearly don't understand what they're talking about. Um, Two, that they really don't care um, because it doesn't matter how much you try to explain to them um, the care that we provide, the scenarios that um, patients present with, that's not what they're interested in hearing. Those aren't the things that gets votes, in other words. Um, I think when they use inflammatory language, when they put forth these absurd scenarios, those are the things that rouse up, you know, audiences and and gets them the votes and, and accolades. And it's very clear that the people that are making these decisions are not uh, medical professionals. And it's unfortunate that they are the ones that have the power and the decisions that they make affect real people's lives. Dr. Yashika Robinson, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. I want to follow up thank on that exact you. point. Thank you. Um, and can hear the conversation with now with someone on the other side of the issue on the political impact that she was just speaking about, the idea of what statements like that or that line of questioning might do to 
incentivize people to actually turn up to the polls in favor of legislation just like this. Alice Stewart is an anti-abortion social conservative and a CNN political commentator. Alice, I'm very glad you're here because I want to get your perspective on this issue. You just heard the doctor state that perhaps it's a matter of not caring. It's a matter of not understanding the medical um, nuance or really the medical obviousness of how abortions in this country are either performed, either surgically or through increasingly so medication abortions. When you hear about the Oklahoma law and, of course, the reaction to it, what is your reaction? I I think this is a huge victory for those that are in the pro-life movement. And I I applaud Dr. Robinson for the care that she provides to to women that are in her care. But the questioning uh, dealt specifically with what uh, some states are leaning toward as third trimester abortions, which is just really unthinkable. What we have in Oklahoma is— But, Alice, hold on. Excuse me. But what states are leaning toward—I mean, just to be—you and I know each other quite well. And you and I uh, know— there is not a state that's articulating that somebody would have an abortion as a child is getting delivered. I don't even know what the medical um, reason for that question would be. Nobody is delivering a child and then halfway out of the birth canal, there is discussion about a- abortion. I mean, there, there's no real state that has that legislation, right? So that was really more of a point of hyperbole. There w- was language in Virginia that hasn't, did not pass, but there was language uh, that would protect third trimester abortion. And, and the line of questioning would be more more to the way of making sure that that does not happen. And what is happening is the power for the pro-life movement is back in the hands of the states if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned. And what's happening in Oklahoma is that they already have the heartbeat uh, protection in place. That law is in place, which would be a trigger law when Roe v. Wade were to be overturned. What happened today is an additional protection. Those that were uh, in in support of the the heartbeat protection bill wanted to move the date back to conception. I spoke with one of the the, uh, women, uh, the senators who uh, drafted the language for this, Julie Daniels, and she said they knew it was a risk, but they felt it was important for the pro-life movement to move the date back to conception. And this would really solidify the pro-life movement. Governor Stitt had said uh, Oklahoma is a Republican state, is a very pro-life state. They support life from conception uh, until natural death. And he feels that it's very important for the elected officials in the state of Oklahoma to support life and the sanctity of life. And the taking of a life to protect another is not the way that they want to run that state. And, And keep in mind, These are elected officials put in place by the people of Oklahoma who knew full well where they stood on this issue when they were elected into office. So Mm -hmm. the key, what we're seeing now, is the power being put back in the hands of elected officials uh, by people uh, who know exactly where they stand. This is in support by the majority of people in Oklahoma. And, you know, if this were to be signed by the governor, which uh, by all accounts it should be, the, the goal here is to provide a deterrent for abortion. And the way this works is with both of these in effect, it would provide a deterrent for the, uh, the person who conducts the abortion. And that has uh, a civil cause of action, which would uh, impose a financial penalty on them. They pay uh, at least $10,000 uh, if they perform an abortion and also are required to pay um, the court fees and legal fees. So this is, it's not a criminal penalty. This is a civil cause of action. It's taking a lawsuit against a person who were to uh, provide an abortion. 
Alice, I always say that America's favorite pastime is not baseball, it's litigation. But as a former litigator and prosecutor, I really wonder about how you're going to be able to effectively either pursue these sorts of cases. Again, this is also emotional distress. Compensatory damages could also be given out. How does one actually achieve this goal? And as you've said, as Justice Alito has written in his his draft opinion, it would return the issue to the states, creating the sort of a patchwork. I just wonder about the strategy in terms of the political optics and how this will be viewed. Will it incentivize people to go to the polls going forward or not? Alice Stewart, thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. When we come back, there's a war within the war on disinformation. And you're about to hear from the woman at the center of the storm over President Biden's controversial disinformation governance board. That's now on pause, by the way. This just three weeks after it was even announced. So why did Nina Jankowitz resign as executive director? Was she taken down by the same kind of discrimination she and the board were meant to fight against? We're going to ask her next. Twitter announcing today that will label and suppress misinformation coming out of places like Ukraine. Yet the Biden administration's biggest step to fight what the FBI director called a, quote, key part, unquote, of the Russian arsenal just got derailed by much of the same disinformation that it was designed to combat. Three weeks after the Department of Homeland Security announced a so-called disinformation governance board, the project's on hold tonight. The administration, in fact, faced fierce criticism, both from civil liberty groups on the left and from GOP lawmakers and right-wing media, which claimed that the board, and specifically the woman who picked was picked to lead it, Nina Jankowitz, was un-American and, quote, Orwellian. The president's ministry of truth is just an un-American abuse of power. Nina Jankowitz. She actively worked and spread misinformation that now has been proven false and they want to put her in charge. They assure us that it's not the speech of conservatives or conservative media outlets. Yet this woman who was in charge of it, she labels disinformation, things like the Hunter Biden laptop story in the New York Post a couple years ago, which now even the New York Times and CNN acknowledge are truthful information. Terminate this Orwellian ministry of truth, fire Nina Jankowitz, and prevent the Biden regime from silencing the American people. Even the DHS secretary admits they weren't ready for the exact same kind of tactics the board was supposed to spot from, say, foreign governments or international crime syndicates. I think we probably could have done a better job of communicating what it does and does not do. Well, here's the stark reality. Even as the department puts the board on hold and looks for bipartisan recommendations on where to go next, the truth of the matter is the threat of disinformation still remains. Well, the woman who found herself in the middle of the storm, Nina Jankowitz, is here now. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for joining us today. Nina, I I have to ask you. Thank you. Excuse me. I have to ask you, Nina. I mean, this is (laughs) many people are wondering about um, the idea of what was the purpose of this particular, you know, organization, what you were doing and overseeing, because if there were questions and concerns about the very tactics or the goals Why was that not communicated effectively? 
Well, you know, I understand Americans' concerns about the idea of government getting involved in policing speech. But the good news is the board had nothing to do with policing speech. The idea was that the board was going to be an internal coordinating mechanism, making sure that DHS subcomponents, things like CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, FEMA, which deals with natural disasters, uh, you know, all of these components within DHS were equipped with the tools they needed to continue the work to fight disinformation that they've been doing for more than a decade already. This absolutely could and should have been communicated better. I wanted it to be communicated better. But the reality is that the type of disinformation that DHS is, is charged with combating or addressing is stuff that keeps Americans safe and secure. So let me give you an example. I mentioned FEMA before. Let's say disinformation information from an adversary like Russia, China, or Iran is putting people in harm's way during a natural disaster. That is the type of thing that we were trying to support our colleagues across the department in doing. And unfortunately and ironically, we were undone exactly by a disinformation campaign coming from folks who apparently want to put our national security behind their own personal political ambitions. Your expertise is apparent. I mean, your Chiron talks about the book that you've written about these very inf information. You've just articulated the ways in which you've helped others anticipate the issue. So why was that not anticipated here in the sense of, did you not expect that there would be some measure or some inclination to try to use misinformation to sow distrust in the same thing you're trying to do? Well, you know, DHS is an extremely large department. 250,000 people work there. Uh, the department had other priorities. It's got a huge mission set. And so at the time of the rollout, I think there were other priorities that uh, were were kind of put ahead of this rollout of the Disinformation Governance Board. Um, and unfortunately, the advice that I had given was not heeded about how to how to communicate, uh, how to communicate openly, transparently and rapidly. And we created unintentionally an information vacuum that was filled with falsehoods and, frankly, directed a lot of vitriol um, and digging into my own personal life that I think was entirely disproportionate to the amount of power that I had at the department. These decisions were being made at a much mm. higher level than mine. And as a result, you know, my family and I have faced threats almost every day for the past three weeks. I don't think that that is uh, something that anybody should be priding themselves on. And frankly, the, the lies and falsehoods that were spread about the Disinformation Governance Board, as I said before, this childish behavior is putting the national security of our country behind uh, uh, this sort of partisan vitriol, and we need to we need to stop that because it's our adversaries who recognize that that partisanship, that politicization, is exactly what they can manipulate, and why America is vulnerable to disinformation well, right now. Well, first, it is extraordinarily unfortunate, and I'm so sorry that you're dealing with that as a member of your family and thinking what you're going through on that notion. But that's that what you speak about is the very question I have as to I understand why you have resigned from the from being executive director. But why was the board shut down? I mean, the idea of it no longer being or being on a pause right now, for the reasons you've just stated, the idea of the importance of national security, the idea of international um, manipulation and exploitation of the recognition that misinformation is in many respects ruling the day. Why is it not operational right now? 
Well, you know, I didn't resign because of the threats. I'm happy to take one for the team uh, and take one for the country, frankly, in, in dealing with disinformation, because this is how important this issue is. I resigned because I was unsure of the direction that the board was going to be going in. And frankly, I hope the department continues this important work. I hope it doesn't let this partisan vitriol color the rest of the important projects that the Department of Homeland Security is doing related to critical infrastructure and election security. And as I mentioned, disasters, the border, et cetera. There is dis and misinformation in all of those areas. And I do not want to see all of those important projects sidelined by this political partisanship. Um, with the board's future uncertain, I decided to leave because you know what? There's plenty of work to be done in the public sector. I've been doing it for years and I intend to continue doing it. I will not let my critics silence me, uh, again, just because of these ridiculous claims that take my claims out of, out of context, that lack nuance, that decontextualize them. That's the disinformation playbook, and that's what I'm here to fight. Ironically, that's exactly what they would say as a retort as to why they want to undermine the organization. Nina Jankowicz, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You know, the formula shortage isn't about politics. It's about parents feeding their babies. So we're getting answers from someone at the center of the fight to get formula right back on the shelves. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack joins me. But will his message resonate and reassure parents? We'll ask him next. The Biden administration secures the very first batch of overseas baby formula. The shipment from Switzerland is expected in the coming days. Now, meanwhile, the FDA commissioner today tried to reassure parents who, frankly, for weeks now have been desperately trying to feed their babies. It will gradually get better. Within days, it will get better. But it will be a few weeks before we're back to normal. The question is, will it come soon enough for parents who are watching the shortage get more dire by the day? Your mind doesn't stop thinking about it, especially at night. I hate to say, I've lost a lot of sleep. Now, even if the Biden administration can get this problem fixed in a few weeks, it only begs the question, why didn't it take and make these moves back in February? That's when the Abbott plant that's responsible for almost a fifth of the U.S. supply was actually shut down. I want to ask a member of the administration, Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. Secretary, thank you for being here this evening. It's important to have you, you here in particular because, of course, the big question everyone's asking, if we know the plant was shut down back in February... Why is it taking so long to either, A, rev up production or for the White House to be responsive in this way? Well, there were a series of stage, stages that had to be taken. First of all, we had to make sure that uh, we recalled all of the product that was produced in that plant in order to minimize uh, the tragedies that, that occurred. That was the first step. The second step was to make sure that uh, 50 percent of the formula that is consumed in this country is consumed through the WIC program. We had to create the flexibility in that program to basically maximize uh, opportunities for WIC parents to have access. Then we needed to take a look at how we might be able to safely import uh, from other countries' uh, product. Uh, then we needed to make sure we got the uh, plant, the Abbott plant, back online. Uh, the Defense Production Act, which the president uh, authorized yesterday, designed to provide the ingredients, if you will, the ability for that plant to sort of step ahead of everyone else to get those ingredients, to get up and going. And now also basically being able to fly formula in from other countries, had to be able to, to identify the, the resource necessary to purchase that formula. Glad to see that one and a half million 
eight ounce bottles of formula uh, will be headed our way uh, from Switzerland in the very near future, landing in Indiana, Indiana hopefully uh, in a matter of days. That's important to have the corrective measures taken now. But of course, the point two you made in terms of the WIC people, the idea of people trying to ensure they actually have coverage and able to have the supplies they need. I mean, this is a, we're talking about over a million newborns and over a million babies are in the WIC program as we speak. And there was a memo that went out back on February 23rd from the USDA that offered WIC agencies the opportunity to have waivers to allow parents to buy from other brands. So people don't realize WIC actually restricts the access to a variety of formula types. And so you have to really be confined to what your state is actually doing. And it is state by state. So if that's the concern and knowing that should be the concern, at least in part, why from February to now are we just now getting those corrective measures taken? I get there's a bureaucratic process, but time is of the essence for the nutritional value of a child. Well, well, to be to be clear about this, uh, waivers, uh, uh, the recall occurred, I think, on February 17th. On February 18th, we sent out a letter uh, to WIC, 86 WIC agencies that basically operate this program. And within a matter of a couple of days, we began to receive those waiver requests, and those were basically processed. So uh, within a matter of a couple of weeks, we had roughly 66 of the 87 uh, WIC uh, state agencies requesting and grant and being granted waivers. So those waivers went into effect immediately uh, in, in uh, early March and have been in effect uh, for some time. In addition, we also worked with Abbott to make sure that if there was additional costs associated with with a, a transition to a different uh, brand, that Abbott would essentially pick up the cost. We asked them to extend that uh, effort uh, through, the, through the summer. So there's been a lot of activity taking place. And in fact, work was done on waivers immediately. So in terms of Abbott in particular, and I, I appreciate your explanation on that and the idea of the expedience of dealing with the waiver issue, but going forward, you know, it's very concerning for parents all across the country, even like myself. I don't have children, babies any longer, but I still have children. I remember quite well what it was like to try to make sure they had the nutrition they needed. And I know formula is very regulated in this country for that very reason. But do you have concerns going forward about the market share power that, say, an Abbott has? If the idea of a recall such as this, and it's important to recall any contaminated product, of course, but if the market share is so extensive that it could lead to such shortages, are there plans going forward to make sure that this doesn't happen again in terms of that market share as well? Well, Congress obviously is passing legislation that's going to create greater flexibilities, but you raise a good point. And I think uh, basically as a result of this circumstance and frankly, as a result of the pandemic, I think we're rethinking the efficiency of our food system. Uh, it is incredibly efficient, uh, but one of the reasons it's efficient is because it's become quite concentrated. So the question is uh, whether we need to basically uh, create more competition, uh, which may lead hopefully to uh, uh, lower costs and greater flexibility and greater uh, resiliency in the event of disruption. And I think that's an appropriate question to ask, and I would anticipate and expect that folks uh, across the country are asking that question today, whether or not it makes sense to see an expansion of of, uh, production facilities or ways in which we can be a bit more resilient when and if we have a disruption of this nature in the future. Secretary of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, thank you for your time. Thank you. Ahead, new developments at the defamation trial of actor Johnny Depp versus his ex-wife Amber Heard today, including a video deposition played from actress Ellen Barkin. Some very strong words against Depp from her. Depp's not on trial. But will Barkin's testimony hurt his case? We'll explore it 
next. More damning testimony today in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation saga. Heard's legal team continued its defense by bringing former Depp associates to the stand to testify about the star's alleged pattern of alcohol and drug abuse and its impact on his behavior. Jurors even heard from actress Ellen Barkin, who was apparently in a romantic relationship with him back in the 90s and, well, recounted this. Mr. Depp threw a wine bottle across the room, the hotel room on one instance, in Las Vegas while we were shooting Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It was a toss. And he's just a jealous man controlling where are you going, who are you going with, what what did you do last night. I had a scratch on my back once that got him very, very angry because he insisted it came from me having sex with a person who wasn't him. This perspective now from Ken Turkle, an attorney who specializes in celebrity defamation cases. Ken, I'm glad you're here. And we've all been sort of watching this play out, although this case really points out to you there is the court of law and the court of public opinion. There's a lot that's playing out on social media, as you well know. From your perspective as a lawyer in terms of defamation, how do you see this case? Is it leaning in one direction or the other? It's hard to tell. It doesn't act like a defamation case, privacy case, general reputation type claims. Um, The case is really presented more like almost a classic he said, she said, domestic abuse, domestic violence case. Um, For instance, you know, they're not engaged in sort of historical arguments over speech, such as an actual malice standard, like I recently had in the Palin case. Um, and, And so in that respect, you have completely polarized positions. You have complete denials on both sides of the conduct and a very long trial kind of given the subject matter of it. So you read the Twitterverse and you read the fan base is activating and that's great. But I don't think you can ever use this as a barometer for what the jury's going to do. Um, I think people lose sight of the fact that in the, the, the cracks and margins of a trial, jurors are looking at everything, every little every little uh, scintilla of nonverbal conduct, for instance. And um, you just never really know. I mean, you you right. prosecuted, you understand that a jury goes out and you're, the feeling's always the same, right? So I don't think we can draw on the fan base and the social media. Um, we're looking at just line, is just witness after witness relating to two positions that are completely opposite. So- well- well, what's interesting uh, about that to me in particular, Ken, and, and having you know prosecuted but also done defamation cases, is the idea of, and you're absolutely right with this, the, the normal protocol is to focus on what the thing you're there for is, which is the idea of the op-ed that was written by Amber Heard that intimated that she was a victim of domestic violence. And Johnny Depp believes that although his name was not mentioned in that, that people assumed it was him and he's had a reputational harm and been blacklisted as a result of it. Now, we and I know that, of course, the, the idea of the actual malice standard, because they're both public figures and truth of the defense should come in, but we really haven't heard so much about any of that. It's really been more about the toxicity of their relationship or the allegations around it. How will that vote in terms of a jury being asked to decide the law here, though? There's the salacious 
There's the SNL skits. But then there's the idea of, has there been the standards met and the burdens of proof? Right. And so to your point, in a defamation case, the, the element of other concerning, right, a threshold element that the defamatory publication, whether it be libelous or slander, has to be about the plaintiff, okay? That's not really getting debated here. Uh, and, um, yeah, I've had to survive that motion on dismissal, summary judgment, and in trial. And so you have that aspect of it, which is traditionally more of a speech issue that isn't really being fought. As to why they're there, and this is something I think that's, it's critical to look at, these cases should have a reason, okay? And whether that reason is hard and fast business damages, i.e. lost opportunities, which both sides are certainly talking about, mm -hmm. or vindication of principle or vindication of reputation, that should be driving the case. Like any case, you should have a goal and a result you're looking for for your client. And I don't know, and I think this is what's fascinating about this case. Ultimately speaking, after, what are we, 19 days into the trial, Laura, Laura something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know that you ever come out of this um, as a winner because this toxic relationship is just being vetted for the whole world to see. You know, their respective fan bases are going to be fine. But to what end? Are they trying to rehabilitate careers for Hollywood? Does that happen when you air this much dirty laundry for this long? Because in my experience, when I've represented high-profile clients, that's what you don't want to do. And in fact, in certain cases, you don't even bring it because you know the media cycle is going to emphasize it. So I question that. I, you know, Something that popped into my mind was when the, the audio tape got played. Um, I can't remember a week ago or so that Amber Heard was on. That you, mean that the one she, me, you, you mean the one when she mentions the idea that she doesn't care if, what, what was the phrase? Something along the lines of, um, it, you know, it doesn't matter if what she said was a lie. Something to that effect. Right. Right. And you have this tape, you know, jurors learn visually and they learn by things like audio tapes, right? I mean, the lawyers talk, but they get it after a while. And like many cases, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this, you, know, you tend to overtry them. But when you have that evidence to me, if I'm on Team Depp, I'm done there, right? In other words, you resolve the case there and you've kind of convinced the world that like, look look what I'm dealing with. Now, who knows what's been discussed behind the scenes and that's always hard when I talk about other people's cases. For instance, this parade of character evidence, Ellen Barkin, I, I can't under uh, similar fact evidence standard understand really exactly why that comes in. Okay. Well, that's an interesting but, point, and I, and I was thinking that because a, a lot of the audience, of course, remembers, for example, the Bill Cosby trial, and these are not, you know, at all analogous facts here, but the analogous facts, but the idea of why evidence comes in. We'll have to keep watching because this is certainly not over. Ken Turkle, thank you so much. Lord, thanks for having me. Thank you. I do want to turn to a much different legal case, but one with this elephant at the center of the fight, and I do mean the literal elephant living at the Bronx Zoo. But... The question is, could the law treat her as a person when it comes to where she lives? Listen, her case might be stronger than you think, and the video that may help her case, we're gonna play next. So could a lawsuit involving an elephant change how we define a person under the law? Look, that question's at the forefront of a case before the New York Court of Appeals as we speak. So let me introduce you to Happy, a 50-year-old elephant who has lived in the Bronx Zoo for most of her life. Now, a group called the Non-Human Rights Project is suing to get her released. It argues that Happy has 
habeas corpus rights under state law. Now, habeas corpus rights protect against unlawful detention of people. But what defines a person? Now, Happy's attorneys argue that she deserves personhood protections because she's highly intelligent and autonomous and self-aware. She was the first elephant to pass the so-called mirror test, which very few species have passed successfully. You're seeing a little bit here. You can see her touching a white X on her forehead repeatedly. Now, scientists say that that means that she can recognize herself. Now, right now, Happy is being kept alone, which zoo officials say is in her best interest. But her attorneys argue in order for Happy to truly be happy, she needs to be with other elephants in a larger sanctuary. Let's discuss now with CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey, I'm glad you're here. And people may at first blush say, why are we talking about an elephant and personhood? But over the history of at least the legal jurisprudence, we have been debating the constraints of who is a person, whether it's three-fifths of a man or the idea of a corporation. Now this case, what do you see happening here? You know, when I first heard about this case, I, I probably like you, I thought it was kind of a joke and, and ridiculous. And, you know, I still don't think it's going to win, but it is um, a more complicated and interesting question. You know, as you pointed out, you know, the, the courts have said that the Constitution protects non-people, corporations, um, in certain circumstances, ships in the law of admiralty have constitutional rights. So the idea of who has constitutional rights is not a simple question. Now, the question here is about animals. And um, one definition that has been used about who deserves constitutional rights is some, uh, someone who has the capacity to bear uh, duties and responsibilities. And um, that's not, it's got to be broader than that because there are lawsuits on behalf of infants, children, people with intellectual disabilities. They don't have you know, the intellectual ability to form a desire to bring a lawsuit, but the law allows them to bring a lawsuit. So the question is, do animals uh, fit into that category? And interesting that they're using habeas as a way, and for many people who may remember habeas, these are unlawful detention, as in you're supposed to bring the body before the court. They have to have their due process rights secured. Here, they're saying that this elephant, who they believe should be akin to a person, is having their, is being unlawfully detained by not being in an animal, animal sanctuary for elephants and being essentially in a type of solitary confinement. Interestingly enough, they, this same organization has tried this with chimpanzees, chimpanzees for example. Yeah. And I'm wondering, what do you think makes the difference now that the Court of Appeals is even grappling with this issue? Because they had a whole lot of slippery slope type of questions in terms of trying to reach the logical conclusions. Who else might be next? Is it a dog? They can't be a pet any longer? What do you think about it? Well, th see, I think that's why this argument, which is more interesting than I thought it was, falls apart. Because, you know, w the, the line between an animal that deserves protection and an animal that would not deserve protection, for example, all the animals that we eat, um, which obviously is not something that any court is going to grant protection to, I don't think the law is capable of drawing those sorts of distinctions. You know, chimpanzees uh, and um, and uh, elephants, yes. Uh, dogs, no. Cats, no. I, I just don't think judges are going to want to get into those categories. But, you know, remember, too, there are laws on the books that protect against animal cruelty. So 
uh, the law has recognized that animals have a status that the law protects in some circumstances. The problem is uh, not, it's never been an affirmative right. It's never been a right that your dog can go to court and say uh, the, uh, the, the master is treating the dog cruel, cruelly. But, you know, it, it, this, this topic, you know, I, I was reading some of the briefs in this case. Argentina, Colombia have actually allowed certain lawsuits on behalf of endangered animals. Um, so, I mean, it, it's not uh, out of the question everywhere. And it is a case that makes you think more than more than you more than you expect at first. But ultimately, I don't think it's going to win. I mean, it's a fascinating case, particularly on the backdrop that I think the irony is lost on no one that on the backdrop of waiting for a Roe v. Wade opinion about defining a person and who has rights and state's interests compared to others. It's a really fascinating case. Jeffrey Tubin, thank you so much. Okay, counselor. Hey, thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow. Don Lemon tonight starts right now with, of course, Don Lemon. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.